Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and to trust Him more. To keep up with us or to get more information, visit celebrationchurchlive.com. Well, we kicked off um, our Cage Free series uh, last week, and um, we're in part two of seven parts. And so if you've got your Bible app or your notes or however, however it is you're going to track with us, that we've led with this idea that Jesus set us free so that we can live free. That's the whole point. He wants us to be able to live free. Praise God. As soon as you and I recognize who Jesus is, what he has accomplished for us, that we place our faith in him and we step over from death into life, that heaven is our eternal home and that the most important thing is secured and done and taken care of and and is a spiritual reality. But in that, while we're still breathing this oxygen, there are things, there are our own habits and hangups. There's childhood trauma. There are patterns and addictions that begin to come in and create cages for us in our lives and have us not living in the fullness of the freedom that he paid for us to have. Paul writes to the people of Galatia in Galatians chapter five, verse one, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's the whole point. He wants us to live in freedom, but stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It can, you can continue in this unnecessarily if we don't stand firm and all of a sudden we begin to get a yoke that holds us down, that controls us and pushes us in an unhealthy direction. If we don't grab a hold of the freedom that we have in Christ, that was the, the freedom was the whole point. That's what he wants for us. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Thankfully, that eternity and salvation is the most important and it is the biggest part, but that's not the only part. He wants us to begin to let his freedom show up in our lives and we become beacons of freedom to other people who are still in their cages, still dealing with stuff even here and draw people to Jesus. Because the truth is, is when you've done something with purpose and that purpose gets derailed, it's frustrating. When you've done something with purpose and all of a sudden it doesn't get to live out that purpose, it's really frustrating. If you've saved up some money, you've saved up a little cash and you've put it aside and you're excited because you had a purpose, you had a plan for it, and then all of a sudden in that you notice that uh, the hot water is not working and you now have to replace the water heater. And you've got the money, it is set aside, but you did not save that money for a new water heater. That was not your plan, that was not what you were excited about. Nobody gets excited about getting a new water heater. It just goes in a closet and it does its job. You don't go to Lowe's and go peruse the aisles of the water heater and go, ooh, look at that one. We can't wait, I'm saving up, you're gonna be mine, you're gonna be mine. Nobody does that with a water heater. do it with a new fridge you might do it with a new stove 
Might do it with some new furniture for your, for your living room, but we don't do it with a water heater. All of a sudden, it's a need. But that money we had set aside, we, we weren't excited about that. It got, it got derailed that its purpose got sent in another direction, and we weren't very happy about it. We have these moments of disappointment. We have these moments of frustration all the time. We have these big things that are full of promise and ideas. We have the moments where we walk the aisle and we say the vows and we have an idea of what this is going to look like lived out till death do us part. It doesn't go that way. It's heartbreak and disappointment and discouragement because you didn't walk the aisle and say the vows to end up at the spot you ended up. It's just, it's just crushing. So excited on your first day of college as a freshman and have all these ideas for your career and life happens and things take place and you look up and you've never lived it out. You've never pursued it and it's a hope, it's a desire, it's a dream that's been squashed and it's frustrating and it can be soul crushing. But the truth is, is that any place of disappointment, it hurts. It's frustrating. It's frustrating when you have a plan for something like this is what I had desired for this to be and then it ends up just getting robbed from you. It just ends up being taken from you that there was, there was a purpose and it wasn't experienced and it's just so incredibly frustrating. It's certainly on the big levels but the truth is, is it happens on the little levels too. It happens on those small things. We can end up having a string of disappointments and frustrations that take place and sometimes those happen because the people closest to us in our lives end up being a tool of the enemy to bring a place of of disappointment and years ago I was a tool of the enemy in my wife's life and on yeah years ago and uh we, before we even started Celebration Church, we had uh, gone to Amarillo and uh, to go and uh, check out a church there. And as we were there, we stayed in a hotel. We had, we had just five kids. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have seven kids, but we had just five at the time. And so we all seven of us went to Amarillo and spent the weekend there. And, and I stayed in a, in a nice hotel. And one of the little extras that they provided was one of my, my wife's uh, favorite muffins. They had these gigantic chocolate chocolate chip muffins and she just loves these muffins and so and they had them in the little cellophane package to keep them nice and preserved and moist and ready to enjoy and so we had them and then when we were checking out they'd been replenished there was just these magical new muffins are there and so it's like we can't waste the muffins and so takes one of the muffins and takes it with us in the in the vehicle so we spend the rest of the day after we've checked out looking around and doing some stuff in Amarillo and then that afternoon we have to hit the road and head back to San Angelo and Cutie had grabbed the muffin, saved the muffin, had a purpose for the muffin and then on the way back she sets it up on the dash so it can sit in the sun and inside this little package get get some get warmed up by the sun just like you just 
fresh out of the bakery. She just lets it sit there and get just nice and perfect. And so as we're driving down the road, driving down the highway, 75 miles an hour, and, and uh, so uh, 75-ish. And so, and, uh, so driving down, the, we're driving at highway speeds. <laughs> driving down the road. And she finally hits. Her, her hunger is just at the right spot. The warmth of the muffin, she's just anticipating being great. She reaches up, grabs the muffin, opens up the package, and this is where I get demon-possessed. I, I don't know what happened just for a split moment. Um, I forgot who I was, and I just roll the window down casually as we're driving on the road. And... For whatever reason, she just doesn't like, hey, what's going on over here? And so, and I roll the window down, kids are in the back. She's just about to bite the muffin and I reach over, grab it and chunked it out the window at highway speeds, which I thought was hilarious. I'm laughing, I'm laughing so hard, I'm putting us in danger. And so, but I'm the only sound in the space because she's just sitting there stuck. She just can't believe the fact that the muffin has just left. And my kids are just completely silent. They're just like, dad is going to die. I know the demon left me because my kids interceded for me. And they're like, Lord, we cast it out in Jesus' name. Save our father's life. And so, and so, and then, but I, I it just was, I just thought it was funny. I, we pick on one another. It's, it's, we just mess with each other. And I, I just thought it was hilarious. We're going to be stopping at a town and country or stripes and for not long. And I was going to buy her a new muffin. I was going to buy, now she's just sitting there. She, 45 seconds or so, she just stares at her empty palm. And I am just laughing. I said, babe, I, I'm going to stop. I want to buy you a new muffin. She says, no, you're not. I'll buy myself a muffin. She said, but you're not fixing this. You're not fixing anything. I've sat there. I've tried to buy more. I've given her multiple chocolate, chocolate chip muffins. She'll take it. She's like, this don't fix it. And so I was like 25 muffins into this thing. And I still am not out of the muffin hole. And so, but the space is that she, she had a plan. She grabbed that. She set it aside. She made it her own. She put it in a space where it could flourish and be all that it could be. And then it was robbed. It was robbed. I'm preaching. <laughs> and it was, it was robbed. It was just taken and it was just, it was so, it was so disappointing because she, <laughs> she had just laid out everything just right with the plans and intents of her heart for it to have an expected outcome. And then she just felt robbed. Folks, Jesus went to the cross. The scriptures say that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. 
That joy was you and I renewed with the Father, made alive in Christ. That was the joy, but that was just the beginning of the joy because the rest of the joy is you and I set free. You and I living the way God created us and designed us to be, not with the burdens of all of what life has done and, and put us into these little modified versions of life, trying to cope, trying to get through, trying to make the best of it. Then in that, when we live that way, there's a space where I just wonder, is there a space where God feels a little robbed in that? That there's some freedom he intended for us and all of a sudden we participate with the enemy and not allow the fullness to be enjoyed. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. When we let him be Lord, when we let him guide us, when we let him be the one in control, he takes us into a place of freedom. He, he brings about freedom in our lives. And we're about to look at two key questions that guide us in our journey of freedom with Jesus. We start eternally free, but he wants to set us free in this life as well. And that, that journey of freedom, it will continually over and over and over and over again be guided and bound in by these two key questions. And the first one is, is who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Because Jesus can't bring you into freedom if you don't think he frees people that way. If you don't think he gives it, if you don't think he offers it, you can't receive it. So you first have to decide who is he? Does he do it? And sometimes you're like, God, he does it, but he does it for everybody else. No, you have to understand his heart of love for you. Who is Jesus to you? Mark chapter six, verse one. We see here that Jesus left there where he had been and, and went to his hometown, Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's the wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. Now, last week when we started this series, we looked at Luke chapter four, where Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, in his hometown, at the very beginning of his ministry, right after he had dealt with the temptation in the wilderness. And they respected him enough in that space that they, he stood up to read and they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he finds in the space where it was written of him that the spirit of the Lord had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for those who were imprisoned, to, for recovery of sight to the blind and to set those at liberty who were captive. He read that 
in Nazareth, in that synagogue, and then declares, this has been fulfilled in your reading. Then he travels around and ministers and performs miracles. They're hearing all about it, seeing all about it. He let them know this is what God's done. The spirit of God's on me because of this. But for some reason, even though they were the first ones to hear about it, and then Jesus goes around and lives it out and then comes back, they take offense at him. They take offense. And the reason was is because of their previous experience with Jesus. They had some backstory with Jesus. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. They knew 10-year-old Jesus. They knew the 12-year-old Jesus that hung back and irritated his parents and everybody that was traveling back and forth between Jerusalem and Nazareth. They knew that the parents had to leave and go back and get Jesus. They'd heard mom and dad say, oh, he was there teaching the teachers. (laughs) Sure, Mary. Sure. That's why you got held up. They knew about Jesus. He was a carpenter. He was trained in the profession of his dad. He was a carpenter. We know his brothers, his sisters. We know his mama. We know the rumors about his mama and his birth. Hmm. And they discounted him because of their previous experience with Jesus. Their previous experience limited who they saw he could be. Even though he had declared what was going to take place, even though the miracles and the signs and wonders took place and they didn't say that they didn't happen. They're like, how? Because he's just so normal. Verse four, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. I love that healing is just one of those common miracles. It's a big one to us. But here it was just a common, their faith was so low that's all he could do was heal some sick people. Man, is it God that wants to do so much more? We limited him because of our previous experience with Jesus. We're like, I've been around Jesus a while. Does he really heal sick people? Our experience can begin to speak to us higher than the scriptures do. In verse six, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. And then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. I don't remember the first time I heard the name of Jesus. Thankfully, it's, I was raised in a godly home, in a Christian home, and, and my extended family are believers. But the other part is, is living the Bible Belt. Jesus gets brought up. Jesus gets and when we understand Jesus, we automatically understand and we ask any questions at all about Jesus, we're going to be told he's the son of God. That first paragraph of describing who he is, you don't live in this space and not know he's connected in that way. And so here's you and I's problem. We didn't grow up with carpenter Jesus and have to adjust our viewpoint of who he is because he was carpenter Jesus in our hometown. 
you and I, we have to adjust our viewpoint of Jesus because we grew up with him being the son of God in our hometown. That's just who he is. And there's a difference when you have a revelation of who he is and when you have just some sort of information about who he is. Nazareth discounted Jesus because of their information. But there's another response. There's another option. Further on in Mark, we see in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what are you? What about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more information of that exchange in verse 16 of chapter 16. It says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. This isn't based on your normal experience. It's not on your past information. You got some new information directly from the Father. And I tell you, you are Peter, which means little rock. And on this rock, so that translation, that word for rock is Petra, big rock, huge rock, mountainous rock. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in whatever you, ah, I'll give you the kingdom. Let me try that again. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This place of freedom is found in understanding. It's one of the keys of understanding who Jesus is, that he is Messiah, the deliverer. He delivers you. That's what a Messiah does, a savior. There's something that was, that was threatening you and you get redeemed from it. You get, you get saved from it. The Messiah is the deliverer. He delivers you. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. When we understand that's what he does, then we can be loosed. We can be free. So we saw the two disparities of one understanding who he really was and a whole other group missing. But the other question is, how do you identify yourself? We see in Mark chapter one, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. That was their identity, that's who they were. But Jesus was about to redefine their identity. If you're going to be set free, you got to let Jesus redefine your identity. Whatever identity that you had held on to, you have to hold it on. He may affirm it, or he may all of a sudden change and redefine. But we have to let him speak into that space. He says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Your vocation is only half right. I've not called you to fish for fish. I've called you to help bring in and connect with people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. 
They let him speak into their identity. Then in Mark chapter two, it says he walked along and he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. He was at work. He was a tax collector. He's there at work. And he said, follow me. And Jesus and Levi got up and followed him. He spoke to him in his space of occupation, in his identity, and began to change his identity. Not when he was on break, not when he was in a chill moment, when he was in the thick of it. He was in the thick of it. God is going to speak to you to set you free so many times when you're in the thick of it. When you're right there in the middle of you doing your thing. God will speak to you and say, let's go a new route. Let's go a new direction. But for us to be able to embrace that, we have to let go of our limitations. We have, can limit who Jesus is or we can limit who we are. And we have to begin to turn loose of that and change that. Our worship team is gonna go ahead and begin to come right now. As we look at a guy who had an identity. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were were leaving the city, a blind man. In church world, we call him blind Bartimaeus. But thankfully the scriptures just (laughs) call him a blind man whose name was Bartimaeus. Sometimes the church can do worse with labels than anybody else. That's good. That a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, his identity, his name wasn't even fully his own. It was just who he's the son of. It was the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Makes sense for a blind man to be begging because it was one of the only occupations a blind man could do. Praise God, in our day and age, blind people can do a lot of things. But begging was the only thing that the blind man could do. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's funny. The people of Nazareth knew it was Jesus of Nazareth. And they responded negatively. But this man, all of a sudden, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he got excited. Why? Because his Jesus of Nazareth was different to him. Those other people, their Jesus of Nazareth was small and confusing and limited. But his Jesus of Nazareth was was a miracle worker. He was excited. He responded to the word Nazareth differently. In fact, he got so excited, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't shout out Jesus, son of a carpenter. He doesn't shout out Jesus, son of Mary. He says, Jesus, son of David. That means I know that you've got a backstory that goes way deeper than even your lifespan. Your backstory goes back further than your earthly lifespan. It goes back to a promise to David that that God would never let a king vacate the throne of David. That there was a promise that there was a king coming. And when Bartimaeus shouts out, Jesus, son of David, he is calling to that kingly authority. That place where I'm giving you permission to rule in my life. 
I'm giving you permission to begin to make some changes. I want your ways to be what's governing me. But in verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. See, when you get a hold of who Jesus is, who he wants to be in your life, it's kind of natural for a shout to come out. It's kind of natural for you to vocalize it. That's why worship is such a part of the Christian tradition. But there's always this moment when we begin to shout and decree that there be voices to quiet us. We want to silence our shout. We want to begin to quiet and say, no, don't, you don't got to get all like that. You don't got to get all that crazy. You don't have to do all of that. No, no, no. Quiet down, quiet down, quiet down. And sometimes the main voice doing that is you. You're quieting yourself. You've begun to feel this thing. God's stirring something in. You're like, I can't do that. I can't begin to shout like that. I can't begin to decree that's who Jesus is. I've got some, some mixed emotions about this. We got to be like Bartimaeus. It says, but he shouted more. You know how to silence the silencers? It's shouting more. It's getting louder. It's not shutting up. And there you live in that tension between the words coming up out of you and the words trying to come into your ears. I think it's pretty amazing that this, this man who the main way he survived life was with his ears. That the thing he had to overcome was what was coming into his ears. And he had to say, nope, I'm going to shout all the more. I'm going to shout all the more. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus is calling. Every time we see a transformation, we see Jesus calling. He's calling. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And if we read too quickly, we're going to read the next few words. We're not going to understand the impact of it. Because the next few words say, throwing his cloak aside. Throwing his cloak aside. Now, in our Western culture, that means nothing to us. But when this was written, that meant everything. Because as a beggar, that cloak was his garment that identified him as a legitimate beggar. There's always been people who would fake injury and fake handicap to try to take advantage of people. And we've all through the centuries have had different ways to modify that. And there in Israel, they would inspect someone, see if they were legit, and then they would issue them this garment. And this garment, this cloak, identified him as a legit person of need so that people could respond to him. And he took this thing that had been his identity, his identity as a beggar, his identity as a person who's disabled, as an identity as a person who, who it doesn't, who is inadequate. And he said, nope, I don't want this anymore. And he got rid of it and he tossed the cloak aside. He's blind. If this doesn't work, how's he going to find it? If this doesn't work, if Jesus isn't going to work, how's he going to find it again? He didn't drag it behind him. He didn't say, somebody hold this for me. I might need it again in a little bit. I'm going to go try this Jesus thing for a second. No, he chunked it aside. He's like, I don't want this. And he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. What do you want for me to do to you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. 
Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He went from being a blind beggar to a full-on Jesus follower that quick, that quick. We don't have the rest of the story. We don't know how far he followed him, but he began, he transformed his life. I want us to stand up. I want us to begin to to respond. I'm telling you, God wants to do a new thing in your life. God wants to bring you into a new space. And there's been some places in your life where you've been hesitant. You felt God wanted to do some things. You felt God taking you forward. And today you see that those, you've got to answer those two questions differently. Who is Jesus and who are you? Are you who he says you are or are you who life has told you you are? Is Jesus who he says he is or is Jesus who life has told you he is? Because if we let just him speak, that's where transformation can Thank come. Thank you for listening to this message from Celebration Church. You can keep up with all that God is doing here at Celebration by following us on Facebook and Instagram.